Good afternoon. If you have a Bible, you can take it and turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5, and we'll look at verses 13 through 16 this afternoon. We wrapped up a series through the Beatitudes um, last Sunday, and um, I hope to show you in some way that these verses, verses 13 through 16, help round out what would be called the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount, and so that's why we're going to think about them and hopefully see how they tie in with the Beatitudes that we've been studying, and so we'll do that um, this Sunday, and then next Sunday, Mark will not have a guitar. He'll be here preaching for us. And so you can pray for Mark. He's going to preach a sermon that he'll preach for the brothers in the Philippines when we're there in November. Um, And so we'll be in 1 Samuel chapter 1 and 2 if you'd like to read for next Sunday, but that's where we'll be. But for this week, we are in Matthew 5 verses 13 through 16. Uh, Time Magazine always publishes a list of the 100 most influential people of the year. And for 2019, they have their list out. It's broken into five categories, pioneers, artists, leaders, icons, and titans. I don't know what a titan is, but I guess you want to be a a titan of influence in some way. Uh, But it includes people that you've probably never heard of, along with people that you probably have heard of. Um, Donald Trump, Taylor Swift, never thought they'd be on the same list, right? Nancy Pelosi, Hassan Minaj, Xi Jinping, Dwayne The Rock Johnson, Spike Lee, and even BTS. If for you K-pop lovers, anyone? K-pop? Okay. In one way or another, there's someone on that list that has influenced your life and mine. Probably more than one. They've had some kind of influence on us. And yet I would venture to guess that the most influential people in your life and mine are not listed in Time Magazine. If I ask you to name, and you can think about this, the most influential person in your life, kids, you might think about who in your life changes you the most, helps you the most, is the one that shapes who you are the most. Who's the most influential person in your life? I don't think Spike Lee or BTS are going to come to mind, unless you're a really big K-pop fan, I guess. Rather, it's the people that we rub shoulders with every day that are the most influential people in our lives. It's the people that you grew up with. It's your parents and your siblings and your friends and your co-workers. Some of them positive influences and some of them negative influences, but all very influential in your life. And so thinking about who's influential in your life and realizing that they probably are not on time's list of the most 100 influential people, it also stands to reason that you and I are influencing others. You are an influencer. You are influential in someone's life. We may not be remembered by history. We may not be recorded by Time Magazine, but we have deep influence in someone's life. And Jesus here in Matthew 5, verses 13 through 16, the final part of the introduction to the Sermon on the the Mount, wants us to recognize that our lives can be lived for the good of the world and for the glory of God. And so to tie that back into what we've been learning, here's what I'd like to give you as a big idea this afternoon. It's this, when, when we seek to live the flourishing life Jesus has called us to, what's the flourishing life? 
It's the Beatitudes that we've been studying, verses 1 through 12. When we seek to live that life, when we seek to live the flourishing life Jesus has called us to, he will use our lives for the good of the world and the glory of God. What an amazing thing. If we would seek to live the flourishing life that Jesus has called, called us to, reflected in the Beatitudes, then he will use our lives for the good of the world and for the glory of God. If you are a child of God through faith in Jesus, then he announces to you in these words that you have influence. And not temporary surface influence, not an influence that fades with the trends of the day, but rather an eternal influence on people, an influence for their good. And you can have an influence for the glory of God in the world. With that in mind, let's read Matthew 5, verses 13 through 16. After Jesus has listed the, the Beatitudes, he says in verse 13, You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. A very well-known passage, a passage that we will not exhaust this afternoon, uh, but we'll hopefully have some insights from it. And so I'd like to begin where every truly great sermon starts with a nerdy structural note regarding why we should connect verses 13 through 16 to the Beatitudes in verses 3 through 12. Um, let me track with me for a minute, okay? Two weeks ago, we saw this shift in voice happen in verses 10 and 11. You remember that? Jesus is saying, blessed are those. And then he kind of looks in his disciples' eyes and he says, blessed are you when you're persecuted. So he moves from the third person to the second person, which continues in verses 13 and 14. Did you notice that? You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Um, Jonathan Pennington, who's actually a resident of our fair city here in Louisville, uh, says that Matthew 5, 11 and 12 are a bridge that connect these two units of the sermon's introduction. He says this, there, he says that they are like the area between two states, such as Kentuckiana, uh, Kentucky and Indiana on both sides of the Ohio River that has clear characteristics of both Matthew 5, 3 through 10 and Matthew 5, 13 through 16. So they bridge and they, they help us see that this is to be taken as a unit. So these two sections are connected and form the introduction to the sermon. So why does that matter? Why is it that important to make that connection? Pennington continues, he says, Jesus is casting a vision for the kingdom way of being for his disciples. The Beatitudes are an invitation to the way of being that will result in their flourishing, while the salt and light statements are the spreading of this flourishing to the world through witness, deed, and invitation to the same. If you didn't catch that, John Stott says it in a similar way. He says, if the Beatitudes describe the essential character of the disciples of Jesus, the salt and light metaphors indicate their influence for good in the world. 
So this is who we are as disciples. This is who we're supposed to be. And then Jesus says, and it has influence in the world in which you live. So when we make that connection, this suddenly moves from being some sort of nerdy grammatical discussion to a very practical and life-giving one. Because what it means is that the essential character of a disciple of Jesus, which is described in the Beatitudes we've seen, the essential nature of the, of, the, of, of the character of a disciple of Jesus is not only what is going to lead to my greatest flourishing and happiness, but it's also what is going to bring goodness and light into the world. That my flourishing, my happiness can bring goodness to the whole earth. That's important because sometimes people seek their own joy and happiness at the expense of everyone else's. We all know this, right? They use people in countless different ways to go after what they think will make them happy. So they rob people, they abuse people, they demean people, they lie. They do all sorts of things to try and be happy. And in the wake of their quest for happiness, there are all these people that have been scarred and hurt. But that's not the case with the flourishing life that Jesus describes. His way of seeking happiness doesn't harm other people. In fact, it brings goodness to the entire world. And not only that, but verse 16 takes us even beyond that. And it says that the ways of Jesus worked out in our hearts and lives actually lead to the glory of God. There's many ways to seek happiness that do not glorify God. But the Beatitudes not only make us happy, but they glorify God. John Piper has said very well, my, my happiness and, and God's glory are not in opposition. They're not opposed to each other. Rather, my hunger for happiness is a hunger for the glory of God because that's what I've been made for. And so God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him and vice versa. I am most satisfied when I am glorifying God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's where I will be happy. Which brings us back to our big idea. When we seek to live the flourishing life that Jesus has called us to, he will use our lives for the good of the world and for the glory of God. So as we think on that, there's the, the, the core of these four verses are those two illustrations, right? Salt and light. They obviously stand out. They're parallel in, in structure. You can, you can see that. They are different images, but they're parallel. And so they're communicating very similar um, ideas. But before we think about what those metaphors mean, I want to make a, a, a note. And so this is the first point that I want us to think about. Members of God's kingdom are called to live in the kingdom of the world. Members of God's kingdom are called to live in the kingdom of the world. That's where we reside. So the, the most clear parallel between you are the salt of the world and you are, you are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world. The most clear parallel is this idea of earth and, and world. They speak of a, of a realm, a kingdom that is distinct from the, the kingdom of God. So Jesus is addressing his followers regarding how they are to live as members of the kingdom of God that he is causing to break into this world. And so we find that, that the kingdom of God is a kingdom that exists within another kingdom. It's currently right now existing within the kingdom of this world. We affirm that this is my father's world, that, that he made everything in it, he's sovereign over it. But we also acknowledge that the world is a place where sin and wickedness and darkness reign. It's a place of rebellion against the 
creator. It's a place um, where we are born in sin, and it's a place where we are all citizens. This is where we are born. We are, king, we are part of the kingdom of the world. And so when Jesus calls us to repent and believe, he's calling us to become members of his people, his family, his kingdom. He's inviting us to be part of his kingdom. And it's only those who repent and turn from their sin and trust in Jesus who are allowed to enter into his kingdom. Jesus has opened the doors of the kingdom of God through his flesh, through his broken body, and through his shed blood. And when we put our hope of forgiveness and eternal life in him alone, then we become members of his kingdom. Members of his kingdom still living in this world. Another way to, to say that we are, we are part of God's kingdom in the world is to say that when we put our faith in Christ, we become the you of verses 13 and 14. You are the salt of the earth. Who you? You who are disciples of Christ. You, follower of Jesus, are the light of the world. Jesus is saying to every one of his followers, followers you are different. And you are to be distinct. And that distinction is made a reality by the fact that we live and exist in the world. The reason that we're going to look different is because we're in a place that's different than the kingdom that we are ultimately a part of. When you trust in Jesus, you're not immediately transported to heaven, even if you want to be. And the call to discipleship is not to do everything that we can to take ourselves out of the world. The kingdom of God that we are part of is not a secret club where we exist behind closed doors. In fact, I would warn you, beware of any brand of Christianity or a cult that makes secrecy a core part of who they are. Beware of people who would emphasize being not of the world and who never speak about living in and engaging with the world. Because Jesus is telling us that we are in God's kingdom, but that God's kingdom exists in this world. And believers are supposed to live out their faith in full view of everyone in this kingdom of the earth. Which then takes us to the thrust of these verses, namely that members of God's kingdom are called to influence the kingdom of the world. So we're to live in the kingdom of the world, but secondly, members of God's kingdom are called to influence the kingdom of the world. We're called to live in the world, but we're also to influence the kingdom of the world. Verses 13 through 16 are like a, a bird being pushed out of the nest, forced to test its wings and see if it can fly. Or they're like a, a young married couple that has to go out and live on their own. They, they force us to test the beatitudes in the world in which we live. Are these things going to work? To see what the results are going to be and to think about how we can have a life for influence, of influence. I listened to a sermon by Ligon Duncan this week, and he said it very simply, we are in the world for the sake of the world. It's very simple. We are in the world for the sake of the world. And the way we are in to influence the world is by being salt and light. Salt is uh, the most difficult of these metaphors. It could mean a lot of different things. It could mean preservation, taste, endurance, purification, even something related to the inauguration of a covenant through salt. Lots of different options. And all in all, it's really hard to be dogmatic on, on its meaning. But wherever you land, the idea ha is going to have to be tied to proclamation and announcement of the kingdom through our lives. That's got to be at the core because it's parallel to light. 
And the idea of light shining forth in the world is, is clear. Light is set in contrast to darkness. The kingdom of the world is a place of darkness where we are to be lights. Apart from Christ, we are blind. We are shrouded in darkness. We don't know the truth. We cannot live in a way that pleases God. We do no good thing. But the gospel opens our eyes to see. And so in a world filled with blindness and darkness, we are to shine forth with the light of the truth of the gospel. And if light is in contrast to darkness, it makes me wonder if it might be best to think about salt in contrast to rottenness. Salt was used for flavoring, surely, in the ancient world. But more importantly, in the day with no refrigeration, salt was used for preservation. Um, we know of salt-cured meats, right, that don't need to be refrigerated. They can be cured with salt. If they're processed correctly, they'll last for a while. Some of you are familiar with dried salt-cured fish. If not, I'll get you some when I go to Cebu because they love it there, right, Joel? I think, did you bring salt-cured fish home? It's amazing to me that you would put that in your, in your luggage, but I love it that you did. So it, it, salt curing is still used. It's, it's to preserve things, okay? And so the idea here is that as members of God's kingdom, we preserve the world from completely rotting in sin. And we also shine forth as lights in the midst of darkness. Do you know what that is? That's influence. We have influence in the world. But how? How do we preserve and how do we shine? I think it, it looks to me, according to the verses, through righteousness and good works. Do you see that in verse 16? In the same way, let your lights shine before others so that they may see what? Your good works. They, they see our good works. They see our righteousness. They're seeing the Beatitudes. They're seeing humility and brokenness and a desire for righteousness. They're seeing peacemaking and purity and mercy. They're seeing a righteousness that sometimes results in them wanting to persecute us, according to verses 10 through 12, but a righteousness that is the good works of God's children that, that brings light to the world and preserves it from completely decaying. There's some parallel passages about being salt in the world that help us to see that saltiness has to do with righteousness, has to do with following Jesus, it has to do with discipleship. We read Luke 14 earlier. Keith read that for us. Um, and, in, and in Mark 9, 42 through 50, there's a similar call to radical holiness, to discipleship, a willingness to do whatever it takes to avoid sin. And then Jesus concludes, salt is good. But if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Being salty has to do with this preservation aspect that is tied to discipleship and righteousness. That's how we preserve the world, through good works and righteousness. Regarding light, we know that, that Israel was supposed to be a light to the nations. You remember that? They were supposed to live in such a way that it made clear who God was and how great he was. Their lives were to reflect his his glory. Their practices were to announce that he was holy. Their way of interacting with others was to show forth his mercy and his grace and his patience. And in that vein, Peter says of the new covenant people of God in 1 Peter 2, 9 to 12, he says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. 
Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh. Do you see discipleship, holiness, righteousness? Abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles in the world honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Doesn't that sound like Jesus? See your good deeds, glorify God. It's through righteousness, it's holiness. That's how we shine. Paul exhorts us in a similar way. Philippians 2, 12 to 15. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And he says this, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you what? Shine as lights. There's a holiness, a righteousness that shines forth in the world. Our conduct in the world shines like a light. Paul reminds us in that passage, and we would do well to remember that any righteousness or good works, any kind of true discipleship or holiness uh, or a life that's lived in love finds the power to do that in Christ alone. Apart from Jesus, we are just as rotten and just as blind as everyone else in the world. But now that Christ's love has been shed abroad in our hearts, and now that he has brought resurrection life to our rotting souls, we are enabled by the indwelling spirit to walk in holiness and purity and goodness. Jesus is the light of the world. And he calls us in John 12, 36 to become children of the light. Jesus is the resurrection and the life, and he calls us to preserve the world from complete decay, just in the same way that he has saved us from eternal death. So we shine and we preserve as we announce the good news of the gospel and call people to repent and believe. We, this is a, a righteousness and a, a call to being made righteous. We shine forth as we live out kingdom principles, as we live out the Beatitudes. We, we do good to all men. We announce the kingdom in word and in deed. And in doing so, we function as salt and as light. And for all of the ways that the church has fallen on its face throughout history, let's remember that for nearly 2,000 years, followers of Jesus, by His grace and through His power, have done just that. They shined as lights. And they've been preserving the world like salt. Apart from God's transforming grace in the lives of His children, the world would be a much more rotten place, a much rottener place, and a much darker place. Not everything done in the name of Jesus has been good. We would all admit that, right? But much done in the name of Jesus has been good. From the very beginning, Christians were set apart as those that did good, that cared for the ones that everyone else rejected, especially the orphans, picked up abandoned babies off the street. And that's how the church grew in many ways. We see it throughout history. You can think about a guy like William Wilberforce, whose commitment to Christ drove him to end the slave trade. I read a little bit about Florence Nightingale, who was the founder of modern nursing. And she's considered to her work done in, her work done in service to others as a work done in service to Christ. And numberless others could be named. 
the poor, the orphan, the widow, the hungry, the sick, the outcast, the disenfranchised, the refugee, and so many others have seen the light of the goodness of God in the face of the followers of Jesus Christ. Because when followers of Jesus follow Jesus, then they make the world a brighter place. They make the world a more beautiful place. We have influence, influence for good and for the glory of God. Jesus is calling us to live our lives as kingdom citizens here in this world, and we are to influence the world in a way that offers light and life. But there's a warning here, isn't there? There's a warning, and the warning is that there is a threat of failure. There is a threat of failure for all of us. And I see this this danger, this threat of failure in two different ways. The first danger is that we withdraw from the world. And the second danger is that we are influenced by the world. So two dangers. One, we withdraw from the world. Second, we are influenced by the world. The danger of withdrawing is seen in this idea of hiding our light under a basket. Does that make any sense? Hiding your, lighting a candle and then covering it up. It doesn't make any sense, right? Why would you light a candle and then hide it? It's pointless. And so Jesus says that if we're going to be light of the world, we should, we should shine brightly in the world. We see this most clearly at the end, but it's not so that people would glorify us, but so that they would give glory to the Father. But still, we, we shine forth in righteousness in the hope that people will hear and see the message of the gospel, that they will see our good works and then glorify God. But sometimes we want to live lives that are just cloistered off from the world, right? We don't want to engage with people outside of our faith community. Even worse, we don't want to engage with anyone. Sometimes it's because of the threat of persecution. It could be because we think people will make fun of us. It could be because we just think people make life hard and we'd rather not interact with anyone. We don't want to provoke others. We don't want to get too close for comfort. We don't want to allow our our righteousness to incite anger in them. We don't want to make them upset. We don't want to make them feel bad. And so we hide. We are not in the world at all. That withdrawing could also mean that we have no meaningful relationship with unbelievers. Jesus, in some ways, is asking us, are we engaging with people who are outside the kingdom of God, who are in the kingdom of the world? Do we have friends and neighbors that we are seeking to be salt and light to? Or have we just hidden our light under a basket and no one can see it? So there's this danger of withdrawing from the world out of, out of fear, out of laziness, out of a lot of different reasons. But the other danger is being more influenced by the world than influencing the world. And I think that's the idea of salt with, with no flavor. Salt that has no flavor or no preserving properties is useless. It's, it's kind of just dust, right? <laughs> it's just little particles that don't do anything. And if we get pressed into the mold of the world rather than breaking the mold of the world by living in the ways of Jesus, then we're, we're as useless as salt that is not salty. So we could think of it like salt that never comes out of the shaker or salt that comes out and is ineffective. So if, if the salt exists in the salt shaker and is not on anything, it doesn't flavor and it doesn't preserve, it doesn't accomplish anything because it's not in contact with anything. 
But if it does come out, but it has no saltiness to it, it's not going to accomplish anything either because it's, it, it has no effect. Now, when you think about these dangers, withdrawing or um, being influenced by the world, I think that for the most part, while we are all prone to both, we're probably more prone to one than the other, each of us. We are probably going to be either someone who withdraws from the world. It could be out of fear. It could be in anger. We see the corruption in the world, and rather than wanting to rub up against it and shine forth in it, we want to avoid possible contamination by it. So we retreat, we remove ourselves from the world. That could be your natural bent. Or you might be someone who wants to engage the world. You want to understand the world, but you might up getting too closely associated with it. You might begin to lose your preserving qualities and find that you're starting to rot yourself or in the world, but not distinct from it. So I think we're typically drawn in one way or the other. So what are we going to do? How, how do we keep from failing in this way? Lots of different ways. Besides God's spirit and the truth of his word, I think one of the greatest gifts to help us from, from either from withdrawing from the world or being influenced by the world is the beauty of Christian community. It's the beauty of the church. How, what, there's this threat to failure. And one of the great remedies to that failure is the church, its community. Because when we embrace community, we can learn a lot from one another. Two things in particular I want to point out that we learn from community that will keep us from either withdrawing or from being influenced by the world rather than influencing it. One, community teaches us that we're not alone. We're not alone in this calling to be salt and light. I don't know about you, but I think sometimes we read Matthew 5, 13 through 16, and we think, oh no, I'm the last great hope for the world. If the world is going to be flavored, if the world's going to be preserved, if the world's going to have the light, it's, it's about me. And we get overwhelmed. But here's the deal. I'm not called to be the salt shaker of the world. I'm called to be the salt of the world. And I find it really helpful to think of myself as one grain of salt. And that's what we are. I'm a grain of salt. Now, I think about that, and then I think about all of, all of you who are believers in Jesus. And you're a grain of salt. And we start getting some more. And then you start thinking about churches in Louisville, and you start thinking about the many grains of salt that are in our city, and then you start thinking about our country, and then you start thinking about the world. And suddenly we've got a lot of salt that's in the world. And that salt is, is so beautifully distributed. You want salt evenly distributed, right? If you don't evenly distribute salt, then it's, it's, it's not going to have as much, it's not, you're, you're either going to, you know, if, especially if you're flavoring something, you get a, a good bite of salt. That's terrible, right? Or if you just preserve one part of the meat with the salt, everything else is going to go rotten. So the salt is, is, is spread out. What a, what a beautiful, comforting thing that God has taken you as a grain of salt and he's put you in a place that I can't get to around people that you have an influence over that I have no influence over. And you're salt in their life. And, and, and you are preserving there. You are shining as a light in that place. And that's comforting to me. I'm not alone in this calling. It's good to remember that I'm not called to be the son of the world. I'm not called to be a city on a hill by myself. I'm called to be light. And you're called to be light. And the image that comes to people's mind is probably not of a chandelier or a fluorescent light bulb like these or a street light or um, 
a, uh, a spotlight in the middle of the Walmart parking lot shooting up in the sky. That's, that's not the kind of pictures that folks were getting. What do you think that they were imagining? I think they're thinking about a candle. Just one little light. But think about that. When, when a room is pitch black and you light one candle, think about the effect of just one simple candle lit in a room and how it pierces the darkness. And that's enough, isn't it? That's enough. A single candle can light a dark room in an amazingly powerful way. But think about lots of candles all together. Think about maybe like a Christmas Eve service where all the lights spread around, you know. I had those candles. I thought about bringing them in, but it just didn't feel right, especially how hot it's been, you know. But think about that. It's, it's not, it's lots of little lights that make big light, that make a lot of light throughout the world. And, and you're the light in your specific place, and I'm the light in my specific place. And, and when we're all shining together, then the world's a lot brighter because of that. So we're, we're all together in this. Think about the power of you as a grain of salt in the space where you are. Think about the power of you as a candle where you're at. And when we're all together, things become much more potent and much brighter because we're not alone. You don't have to do it all by yourself, but together we can have great influence in the world. So community teaches us that we're not alone in this calling. This is the other thing I think community teaches us. Community teaches us that we're not perfectly rounded as disciples. We're not perfectly well-rounded as disciples of Jesus Christ. What I mean is that some of us are gonna be more prone to boldly point out wickedness. Some of us are gonna have a prophetic voice for truth and for holiness. You're gonna be salty in the best way possible. I know salty can be a negative thing, I think, in, in vernacular today, but in, in a good way. But some of you, while not devaluing truth, you're going to be more inclined to engage with other people in love. You're going to seek to go to dark places of the world with the light of the gospel and the love of Jesus. Some are going to emphasize the need of, of being different. Others are going to champion the need of, of graciously engaging with the world with a heart that's geared towards understanding. Some of us are going to want to withdraw in unhelpful ways that keeps us from having influence. And some of us are, are going to be in danger of, of, of being influenced rather than influencing. Now, the sad reality is that we start thinking about all these different personalities and different emphases, and they become points of division rather than points of cooperation. In fact, they become two different kinds of churches. There's the church that, that engages the world, and the church that stands for truth. And, and we're lopsided on one, one, one side or the other. But don't we need both perspectives? Don't, don't we need to be in the world, but not influenced by the world? Don't we need to be engaging with the world in love, but also standing firm in the truth? We need both perspectives. We need to balance one another and learn from one another, not separate from each other at the first sign of disagreement not assume the worst of others or the best of ourselves, but rather work together and think, how can we be salt and light? Because we're all so different and we all have different ways that we are engaging with the world. What's that gonna look like? I wanna encourage you to, to not assume that because someone wants to engage with love that they're selling out on the truth or that because someone is standing firm on the truth that they don't wanna engage other people with love. And not to assume that your way of thinking about things is the best, but rather how can we work together to do both, to be salt and light, to speak the truth 
in love in the world, to shine together. So you're not alone, but you're also not perfectly well-rounded as a disciple, which is, which is good, which I think is why Jesus isn't saying that you as an individual are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Rather, he's saying to all believers, all y'all are the salt of the earth. And all you guys are a city on a hill. You are the light of the world together. You're a team. We're working on this together, not by ourselves. As I thought about this influence we're supposed to have as salt and light, and I'm thinking about these small pictures, just a grain of salt, just a little candle. The words of, of Zechariah 4.10 came to mind. And Zechariah tells us there not to despise the day of small things. And it just reminded me that it's, it's not the bigness of what we do, but it's our faithfulness to be who God has called us to be in the place that he has put us. To be the salt in the place that you are. To be the light in the place that you are. And to not despise the small ways that you function like that. To not think that you need to be in Time Magazine's list of most 100 influential people. And that's the only way you're going to influence the world. So don't despise being a parent. Just seeking to raise your kids to know and love God. That's, that's salt, that's light. You're influential. Don't despise being a child. Honoring your parents, loving your siblings for God's glory, those are ways that you are salt and light in the world. Don't despise that. That's, that's important. Don't despise being a person of integrity at your workplace. Whatever it costs you, that's salt and light. Don't despise the, the small ways that you maybe give to support the church or to support world missions or to support some compassionate cause. That's, that's good in the world that, that is having an effect. Don't despise the fact that you mow your grass and take care of your home and are a good steward of what God's given you. That's a way to, to be salt and light in the world. You're caring for things in a positive way. You reflect a God who is creative. Don't despise the ways that you can be kind to a grocery store clerk or the way that you can be a generous tipper at a restaurant or that you can allow people to go ahead of you in line. That's salt and light in this world when we do it for the glory of God. It's small, but don't despise that. That's important. Don't, don't despise being a positive voice in whatever social media you might use. Don't despise the moments too that you refrain from some, saying something that would tear someone down or that would promote yourself. You're salt and light in what you say and don't say on Facebook and Twitter and whatever else. Don't despise fighting for purity and how you use your phone and your computer. That's salt and light in the world. Don't despise the way you seek to be above reproach in your dealings with people. Don't despise being faithful in your schoolwork, not cheating, not sharing answers with people, but being a person of integrity. Don't despise taking a meal to your neighbor or mowing the grass when they're out of town or offering to help in small ways. That's salt, that's light. Don't despise teaching English to refugees and immigrants as a, just something you might do once a week. Don't despise being a small church in a big city. We can be salt and light. 
It's a, a small candle. It's, it's a grain of, of salt. We are influential. You are influential. And all together, we work to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. We work to be a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. It cannot be ignored. I had a really great idea trying to like have some little candles to give you. I thought, wouldn't it be great if we just had a bunch of like candles in salt shakers and you could put it somewhere? Maybe you can do this. Here's a creative means of reminding yourself. Maybe on your desk at work or somewhere where you think about, I have influence in this place. Maybe find a way to display a single grain of salt. I don't know what that would look like. Wouldn't that be cool if you could show that and say, this is me and I have influence in this place. The other idea I had is you can go to Yankee Candle and get a salted caramel candle and you've combined the two images and every time you burn that, I don't know. But think about these are just household things. Jesus is saying it's common, it's, it's simple. This is who you are, and you have influence, you have power in the world. When we seek to live the flourishing life that Jesus has called to, he will use our lives together. Individually, yes, but also together. He will use our lives for the good of the world and the glory of God. Members of God's kingdom are called to be in the world and to influence the world, but members of God's kingdom ultimately are called to give glory to God. We were created to glorify God. And when we walk in the Beatitudes, we're walking in the righteousness that glorifies God. We shine forth in the world and we preserve the world. And when we do that, we're doing it not for our own glory. We're doing it for the glory of God. Because God's the one who saved us. God the one who is the one who has called us. God is the one who has made us righteous. God is the one who has equipped us to live the life of the kingdom of God in this world. And so he's the only one that deserves any glory. And he's the only one that will receive any glory now and for all eternity. So you are a person of influence, whether you believe it or not. Let's be careful that we... Don't withdraw in a, in a way that keeps us from influencing the world for good. But let's be careful that we don't lose our saltiness, that we become those that are influenced by the world rather than influencing it. And let's work together. Let's remember that, that we need each other. I need you. I, I'm not a city on a hill without you and without all the other believers in this city and in this world. We, we can't do it. We can't salt, I can't salt the whole earth on, earth on my own. I'm not responsible to. But together as we work with one another and love one another, we can have deep influence for good in this world. And to influence others is to glorify, we can influence others to glorify God. Think about that. Your influence for good can lead to someone glorifying God for all eternity. Is there any greater influence that you could have than to change someone's eternal life? No. What more could you ask for? That's worth giving your life to. So let's do it for the glory of God. Let's take a moment of, of silence to reflect on God's word. As you do that, I might just ask you to think about people in your sphere of influence that you can be salt and light to. Maybe you can think about specific ways that you could be salt and light. Maybe the Spirit's bringing those to mind even now. 
Maybe you're thinking about how you're one who wants to withdraw. Maybe you're being convicted that you've been influenced more than you have influenced. I trust God's Spirit's going to apply these truths to our hearts. And so let's take a moment of silence and allow Him to do that, and then I'll pray for us.